It has been a joy to be with you the last several days, to be a part of your missions conference. I've enjoyed the fellowship, the hospitality, the opportunity to serve you. Um, I've been thanked numerous times since I showed up, but in truth, I'm the one that should be thanking you because you've allowed me to serve you in your missions efforts, to stir your hearts up, to help equip and mobilize you for the days ahead in missions. And as you take what God has given you through me and you implement it and you bear fruit, some of that fruit gets credited in my account. Um, That's a Bible concept. Uh, Paul told the church in Philippi, I'm asking you to invest in my ministry, not for my sake, but for yours, that it might be credited to your heavenly inheritance. And so because you've invited me in, you've allowed me to invest in you, you've invested in me too, but because of my investment into you, as you bear fruit, you're, you're causing my heavenly stock portfolio to expand. So I want to thank you. And I want to thank you for the scallops last night, brother. Um, I live in landlocked New Mexico. And so we have wonderful green chili. Am I right? Um, but we have to fly our seafood in. I mean, you guys eat seafood that was in the ocean like hours before you eat it. So that's a, a rarity for me. They were exceptional. So in the midst of my travels, I often hear mission and church leaders pose the following question. Why, after 2,000 years since Christ gave the Great Commission, is almost 40% of the world still without the gospel? That's a good question. 2,000 years later, and yet 40% of the world, thousands of people groups, numbering approximately 3 billion souls, are still without the gospel. Why do so many nations still wait for the gospel? By nations, I don't mean socio-political nations. I mean people groups, ethno-linguistic groupings. If you're here Friday and Saturday, you know about that. If you weren't, you can log on and listen to the messages. But why do so many nations still wait for the gospel? When limitless spiritual resources have been given to us in Christ, that's what Paul said in Ephesians, Jesus has blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing. So when limitless spiritual resources have been given to us in Christ, when an unbelievable abundance of physical and human resources have been given by God to the church, when we consider after all that the Great Commission was the marching orders of Jesus Christ to his church. Why do so many nations still wait for the gospel? Well, people's answers to that question vary widely. Many say that the world still waits because of a lack of partnership. They claim that churches and ministries are so busy building their own little kingdoms instead of working together to advance God's. Some say we need New methods, updated strategies. The world is changing day by day. We need to adjust our strategies. Still others claim that the world waits because of an inequitable distribution of Christian resources. Several years ago, I was at a missions conference in Las Vegas, Nevada. Yes, there are Christians and churches in Las Vegas. Actually, there's a big church community in Las Vegas. But I spoke at a missions conference in Vegas where one of the speakers said with great force as he pounded the pulpit that the world waits because of a resource problem. 
He said, if churches in the developed world would simply share their overabundance of resources with the needs in the developing world, then the Great Commission would be fulfilled. He said, the vast majority of the unreached live in the poorest places on the planet. We should just share our resources. He says, we're hoarding. It's an inequitable distribution of resources. That's the problem. The problem with all of these answers and others that I've heard is that none of them deal with core issues. They merely surface the symptoms of why the world still waits. Ultimately, I believe that the reason the world still waits is not pragmatic. It is not specifically a funding or a resource issue or a strategy issue. In the end, I don't even think it's about our struggle to meaningfully partner with others in the body of Christ. Is it possible that thousands of people groups numbering nearly 3 billion souls are still waiting to hear about our great God and Savior Jesus Christ because those who name Him are not convinced that He's all that great? Could it be that for many Christians, Jesus is little more than a religious side interest? He's useful for escaping hell, but not much else. I wonder, do we, and I'm a part of we, do we have an all-consuming passion to know Jesus in the fullness of his perfections and to love him more than we love anyone, anything, any accomplishment in the world? Is he our treasure Maybe the world still waits because we are not yet burnt up with fervent desire to know him. Friends, to make disciples of all nations, we need solid methodologies. We need sound strategies that are in touch with complex global realities. We need to partner better. We need to understand the difficulties of planting churches among the world's remaining unreached and least reached peoples. In short, we need an abundance of mission skill and knowledge. And make no mistake, the absence of those skills and the absence of that knowledge will hinder our mission's work. But there's a necessity to know God. And it is far more than a demand. It's a requirement. You see, if we do not know God, we don't have ministry. Not knowing God destroys ministry. If we would be people that would inflame the world for the glory of our king, then first, we must burn. We must be ignited. If you're a note taker, I've entitled this morning's message, Let Worship Be the Fuel for Mission's Flame. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8 together, and then we're going to unpack it, and we're going to attempt to learn what it was exactly that ignited the prophet. Isaiah, and set him ablaze to know God and to make God known. Verse 1 of chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, With two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Isaiah's commission into ministry began with a lofty vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. It began with a crisis. A.W. Tozer has here what um, he called a crisis of encounter. Let me define crisis for you. A decisive point or situation. Isaiah is in a crisis. He is beholding Jesus. This is his definitive life experience. He's at a decisive point and everything is about to change. In fact, from this point on, he will never be the same. The word he uses for Lord is emphatic. It's the Hebrew word Adonai, and it means the supreme Lord of all who is over all. He's reigning. The heaven of heavens cannot contain this one. He's the one. This is majestic royalty and holiness beyond all imagination. Now, I said this is a vision of Jesus, what theologians call a Christophany. It's a fancy word, and it just means an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. How do I know that this is a Christophany? Well, if you have time today, right, it may be in the margins there if you're one of those people that likes to take notes in your Bible. John 12, 39 through 41. If you take the time to read that passage in John's gospel, what you will discover is that Isaiah here in chapter 6 was beholding the glory of the pre-incarnate Jesus. Notice something. Isaiah didn't see Jesus until Uzziah died. Now why is this? It's important that it's there. In the year that Uzziah died, it's more than a marker of a year. I think the Bible is telling us something here. I'm not exactly sure, but I believe it's possible that even the prophet did not see Jesus until Uzziah died because his eyes were on Uzziah instead of on God. If you look at Judah's history, Uzziah was a pretty decent king, at least until the end of his life. And his reign ushered in a time of great national prosperity. It was a time of great abundance for the people of Judah. You might say under Uzziah's reign, life was good. So I think it's possible that even the prophet was focused on the king instead of being focused on the king of kings. Maybe he was focused on an earthly kingdom instead of being focused on a heavenly one. Chuck Swindoll wrote these words, God reserves the discovery of the depth of himself to those whose hearts are completely his. He reserves the discovery of the depth of himself to those whose hearts are completely his. Psalm 25 says, Who then is the man that fears the Lord? 
Him will he instruct in the way chosen for him. He will spend his days in prosperity. His descendants will inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. He speaks his secrets to them. God reserves the discovery of the depth of himself to those whose hearts are completely is. So I'm speculating here a little bit. But I think it's possible that prior to this crisis of encounter, Isaiah's heart was divided. See, it's possible to become familiar with the good things that God has created while never having been introduced to the presence of the uncreated. Let me say that again. It's possible to enjoy and become familiar with the good things God has created, to be religious, but to never meet Jesus. And Isaiah here is being introduced to the uncreated one. No beginning, no end. The pre-incarnate Jesus. Matthew 5.8, Jesus says in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Hebrews 12.14, the writer says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy, without which no one will see the Lord. If we want our lives to count for the sake of eternity, then we must have a sharp and stunning encounter with God. We've got to see Him, but we'll never see Him as He really is until we have a heart united in fear of His glory. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. He speaks His secrets to those who fear Him. And this brings up a very important question for all of us, and as I've said, I'm, I'm preaching to myself. Do we have any Uzziahs in our life that need to be dethroned? Deposed? A Uzziah could be a person, it could be a thing, it could be a habit or a possession, it could be bitterness or unforgiveness, it could be a job. I've even discovered that ministry can become a Uzziah. Is there anything in your life that is competing for God's affection? Is there anything that's clouding your vision of Him that's preventing you from seeing Him clearly from an undefiled conscience? By God's grace, if there is, through the power of the Spirit, dethrone it so you can look clearly upon Jesus. Let me share something with you that I've learned about Uzziahs. Have you ever noticed that Uzziahs, and in context here, that is the things that compete for the throne of our heart, the things that compete for God's attention and affection, they gain, they gain power over us by convincing us that they can make us happier than King Jesus, hand, Jesus can. Think about it. We do not enthrone Uzziahs if we love Christ because we have to or because we're obligated to we enthrone Uzziahs because we believe that Uzziah can make us happier and more satisfied than God can. And so here's the point of application. If we would burn bright for God, then we must rebel against Uzziah's coup. Don't let your heart be bullied around by a counterfeit king. Counterfeit kings only give second-rate pleasures. If we want to burn bright for God in this community, on the Cape, and even to the ends of the earth, folks, and spiritually speaking, Uzziah must be dethroned. Notice there are some very unusual creatures that attend this crisis of encounter. They're seraphim. 
And seraphim is translated holy burners or burning ones. They exist to worship Jesus. They're ablaze. And don't mistake these as cute, chubby little cherubs that you might see on a Hallmark greeting card during the month of February. These are amazing and terrible celestial beings, and they circle God in grand array. They celebrate the holiness of Jesus, and they require that his servants are cleansed before they are commissioned. They're so fantastic that if we saw one, I had an encounter with one, I think we'd be tempted to worship them. Look at their very unusual and fascinating anatomy. It's revealing. They have six wings, and I like to try and picture these angelic beings in my mind's eye. So with two wings, they're covering their faces, and with two wings, they're covering their feet, and with two wings, they're flying. I want you to note that four wings are dedicated to worship and reverence. This covering of the face and feet reminds me of Moses' encounter with what I believe is a Christophany in the book of Exodus. He has an encounter with the glory of God at the burning bush and he has to remove his sandals and it says that he hides his face. So they're covering their feet, that's showing reverence. They're covering their faces, that's showing awe. They're in awe of Jesus. And it's worth noting that these creatures, they're created, they're not eternal beings. They're not, um, these creatures had a beginning. They were made by Jesus, but they are holy and that is, I mean, they've never been marred by sin like us. And even they cannot openly gaze upon Jesus. They've got to cover their eyes. And then they have two wings for service to fly around and do the Lord's will. So I don't think it's coincidental that the seraphim give more of their attention to worship than they do to service. There's a two-thirds emphasis on worship and a one-third emphasis on service. Now, service is an essential outgrowth of worship, and service rightly performed is worship. But here's the point. I think service cannot precede worship. It flows out of worship. We have to worship him just because of who he is. You ever notice that there's this relentless, almost irresistible pressure in life and in ministry to take God for granted, to take worship of God for granted while we give ourselves to other things that seem to be more urgent, more practical, more pressing, more demanding. And then as if to pay homage to God, we said, well, we take for granted he's at the center of all we do. The only problem is there's no evidence in our lives that he's at the center of what we we do because we never stop to pray. We rush through our quiet times, our devotion times facing the day. When this happens, folks, our very efforts to serve God end up marginalizing him. Pastor John Piper says, worship is the fuel and goal of missions. It's the fuel and the goal because we're calling the nations into worship, right? Missions begins and ends in worship where zeal for worship is weak, zeal for missions will also be weak. If we have a passion to worship Jesus, we're gonna have a passion for missions, because missions is simply a summons to the nations to come and worship him. That's what it is. And so before we can be effective in calling our neighbors into worship and the nations into worship, we must be worshiping him ourselves because that's what missions is all about. It's calling the world to worship Jesus. 
So Isaiah is getting stirred up to make much of Jesus by seeing much of Jesus. Look at their cry, it's, or listen to it, I should say. It's, it's amazing. Holy, holy, holy. And it's, it's in a voice so loud that the very thresholds of heaven shake. This holy, holy, holy is an ecstatic ascription. It's emphatic. They're not stuttering, folks. The point is this. One holy is insufficient. Two holies is insufficient. Three holies is insufficient. But nevertheless, they repeat themselves to make a statement. This holy, holy, holy is known as the trisagion, which is translated thrice holy, and it means he's infinitely holy. Unfathomably holy. How does one define the holiness of God? How, how do we define God's holiness? Well, because definitions depend on similarities. We look for like things or similar things to help us define something, right? That's how definitions work. You open up Webster's Dictionary and the explanation, it's giving similar ideas and concepts to help you understand what that word means. And so when we attempt to define the holiness of God, we say things like this, pure, otherworldly, maybe unspoiled. And if you have an unusually big vocabulary like this one theologian, you might describe God's holiness like this, altogether different, absolute unique, and uncreated moral perfection. Altogether different. He's different than we are. He's in a class by himself. Pretty good definition, but here's the problem. Even the very best attempts to define the holiness of God, the holiness of Jesus, the holiness of the Spirit, folks, they're dingy gray at best. Why? Because definitions depend on comparisons. But who or what do you compare Jesus to? He's incomparable. And so in some ways, he's undefinable, though, though we should try. We should try to give expression to how awesome he is. But we'll never fully be able to do it properly. In Isaiah chapter 40, God asks, verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? It's a rhetorical question. There is no answer. And so what he says is, who will you compare me to? Who is my equal? He says, Lift your eyes to the heavens. Who created all these? He who calls out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. He says, you want to compare me to someone? Here's what you need to do. Look up. I made each and every star. Billions upon billions of them. I not only know them by name, I shepherd them. There are suns, stars, vastly larger than our sun. 9,000 times bigger. Betelgeuse is one of them. There's billions upon billions of them. Get out from the city lights, away from light pollution. You want to think about what God is like and just look up. Start counting. That's who he is. God's holiness, by the way, is his only attribute that is raised to the third power in Scripture. His only attribute that he raises to the third power, which means he is saying something very important about his holiness. That's worth meditating on. Now notice the focus of these seraphim. They say, 
the whole earth is full of his glory. This is a missions message after all. The glory of God is the radiance of his holiness. Or you might say his glory is seen when his holiness goes public. And we know one day that will happen, that the glory of God will fill the earth the way the waters cover the sea. That's what Habakkuk says. And that's what missions is all about. And the cry of the seraphim here anticipates this event, the glory of the God, glory of God filling the earth. The Hebrew word here for glory, we talked about it um, yesterday, I think it was, is kavod. And get this, it means to make weighty or heavy. So what's happening in this scene is the weightiness of Jesus. The heaviness and holiness of Jesus is closing in on Isaiah, reducing him to his proper size. He's feeling the weight of God. And this whole scene is meant to stun us and to silence us and to destroy our complacencies about Jesus. And when Jesus shows up, things get shaken. It says, the doorposts and the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called out. There was a survey of ex-church members some years ago. It's probably valid today too. And it revealed the main reason that they left church or stopped going was they found it boring. Apparently, they do not find worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords a thrilling experience. But here in the presence of Jesus, inanimate objects, doorposts, thresholds, have the good sense to tremble and shake. The reason so many people find worship boring in churches, this is what I think anyway, is because God isn't present at many churches. Now, I know he's omnipresent, so in one sense, he's there. You can't escape his presence. But my point is, the tangible awareness of his presence is not there because when the messages are entitled, Seven Steps to Success, Become a Better You, How to Get Along with Everybody, God does not come through for who he is and he is unwittingly belittled. When preaching is cheap and shallow, people become cold and indifferent. But when Jesus is magnified for who he is, lives are changed. People get shaken. A true encounter with God will be permanent and life-changing. This crisis of encounter leads to confession. Verse five, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen him. Having beheld God's glory, Isaiah pronounces judgment upon himself and he says, I'm ruined or undone. It actually means destroyed or made silent. So I get the idea his language is suffering under the effort to express what his eyes are beholding. Jesus left him speechless. He had very little to say in the presence of uncreated beauty. Now friends, if there ever was an altogether person in Judah, it was Isaiah ben Amos. He spoke the oracles of God and yet here in the presence of Jesus, he's coming apart at the seams. He is experiencing what R.C. Sproul called personal disintegration. He's, he's unraveling. His self-worth and self-esteem are being shattered I don't get the idea that Isaiah is skipping around in God's presence right here. He's in pain. He is filled with fearful trembling and self-loathing. And we don't know all that he was thinking, but based upon his choice 
of words, woe is me, he probably wanted the temple to cave in on him. Anything to get out from underneath the beam of God's holy gaze. Woe is me as I'm in despair. It's a pronouncement of judgment upon himself. Prophets call out judgment, call down judgment on others, but it's another thing altogether for them to call down judgment upon themselves, but that's what he did. So seeing the beauty and the holiness of Jesus Christ made him conscious of his sin in a whole new way, and it led to this accurate vision of himself. Something I pray for my kids a lot is that they would know who they are. They would understand their identity, but you know, they won't know who they are until they know who he is. We don't know our real state until we see him. Isaiah, seeing himself, confessed. It led to silence, and then he eventually confesses the sinfulness of his own people as well. Now, several years ago, something jumped out at me in reading this passage that I had overlooked as I had read it over the years, and I want to show it to you by asking you a question. What was it that absolutely wounded this prophet to the core and produced such sorrow and brokenness? Look at the context here. What is going on? What wounded him so deeply and caused him to cry out like this in awareness of his sin, brokenness, and sorrow? Notice, there's no threats owing to judgment. There's no mention of the terrible consequences of sin, as real as they are. There's no mention of hellfire or brimstone. This is what I noticed some years ago and it stuck with me since. He was broken by beauty. He was transformed by seeing the beauty of Jesus. And here's where it hits home. Sometimes I'm sorry over my sin because I fear the consequences of disobedience. I know you can relate. I don't need to ask. You're sorry over sin because you fear the consequences of disobedience or maybe you're sorry because you got found out but that's not what's happening here. This is repentance. It was the result of Isaiah seeing the holiness and beauty of Jesus and realizing then that Jesus was precisely what his soul had been longing for and yet he'd been looking somewhere else. Application question. My friends, how can we be sorrowful about not having holiness if we don't treasure it? How can we weep and mourn over not being holy if holiness is something we do not love? Can we? Can we weep over not having something that we don't love? So what's going on here? God is leading Isaiah to repentance by putting the beauty of Jesus on display. Is it not his loving kindness and his mercy that leads us to repentance? In my own life, I have never known lasting victory over sin merely to come from a fear of the consequences of sin. What it takes to overcome the power of sin, our bondage to sin, is the power of a superior pleasure. Someone more beautiful, better. That's what's happening to Isaiah here. And he gives a 1 John 1, 9 response. He confesses his sin, and God, of course, cleanses him. 
Folks, the man who thinks he has something to offer God save his broken life is not fit for service. Isaiah is being broken. He's being prepared for service. There's many of us who want to be mighty for God, but first there must be an undoing and an unraveling. Now, if the story ended here, we'd be in trouble. But not only is God infinitely holy, he is infinitely merciful. Look at verse 6 and 7. The seraphim are dispatched. They do their work here of service. They fly to him. They take in their hands a burning coal with tongs, and they touch his mouth, his lips, and they say, your guilt is removed, your sin atoned for. So his sincere confession led to an immediate cleansing, and his fearful trembling, I love this, I believe it now becomes joyful trembling, and his guilt is removed. That's really important. His guilt was taken away. It wasn't just an overlooking of Isaiah's sin. His guilt removed. We need that. A clean conscience is necessary for effective mission work and ministry because missions and ministry are not penance. Some people do ministry to pay God off or pay him back as, or, or penance. And that misrepresents the gospel of grace. The best and most effective servants are people that say, I don't deserve this. I can't believe I get to do it. Let me tell you about my God. So there's this live coal that touches his lips to cleanse him. And I, I think there was the, the smell of burning flesh, no doubt, right? I mean, it's a vision, but just get the picture here. And it's a wounding that brings healing. We know that fire is often a metaphor that God uses to describe himself. One preacher once said, only fire can dwell with fire. Take a piece of iron or steel and place it in the fire and it will absorb the heat and begin to glow with incandescent brightness. To be cleansed, we must confess. I don't think we'll truly confess until we see Jesus as he is. And then as we confess and forsake, we know we begin to enjoy his fellowship. We dwell with him. And when we dwell with him, we take on his likeness. We begin to burn for his glory. And then next comes the commission. Verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? So only when Isaiah was cleansed did he hear the call of the Lord. First comes the cleansing, then comes the commissioning. Now our commission is similar in that we're called to declare the word of the Lord, but I want to have you note something here, and that is the results we can expect in our calling in this time are different than the ones Isaiah could expect in his situation. If you have time today, read the rest of Isaiah 6. And what you'll discover is he's being commissioned into a work where Jesus tells him in advance, no one's going to listen to you. I wonder what would happen if, when God called me into ministry, if he would have told me. Well, thanks be to God, that wasn't the case. But what, at, at the beginning of a calling into ministry, no one will listen to you at all. What you can expect is no responses. Stone faces. That's what he told him. They're not going to listen. He was going to declare the word of the Lord to those who would not respond. Now, listen to our commission. Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. Not might be preached, but will be preached 
throughout the whole world as a witness to all the nations. We know that the gospel will penetrate every nation, tribe, and tongue. Will everyone respond? No, but we know that the world will be reached to the degree that there is a witness of Jesus in every language, tribe, and tongue. Because Jesus said so when he keeps his promises. So we ought to embrace our commission with a great sense of expectancy and excitement. Isaiah could not, and yet he was still consumed by his commission. Why? Because the glory of God had set him ablaze. He'd received the mercy of God. And now he was being asked to be a messenger. And he says, me. And that's where we have our last point. He was consumed. Verse 8. Here I am. There's no twisting of his arm. He's not cajoled into this. Not guilted into it. His guilt's gone. He'd beheld the glory of the Lord. He knew it would have been entirely fitting for God to incinerate him. And yet God bestows mercy. Takes away his guilt. He says, I'm not only going to call you into fellowship, I want you to make me known. He was consumed. As we behold the majesty of Jesus, we should find our calling into this gospel ministry called the Great Commission irresistible. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. He was also consumed. For the love of Christ compels me. You could put consumes right there too. Because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. The love of Christ compels me. He was saying it leaves me with no choice. I find this irresistible. I don't have to do this. I'm compelled to do this. I'm consumed by the love of Jesus. I can't live for myself anymore because I've seen the King, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty. Paul had encountered the love of Jesus, beheld his beauty, understood his sin, experienced his mercy and forgiveness, and he now could not help himself and so he gave his life for the purpose of bringing glory to God. There's a parallel between Isaiah's encounter and Paul's. Think about it. Paul was Pharisee of Pharisees. He spoke the oracles of God, as it were. He was very religious. He knew God, but he didn't know God. He sees Jesus. The vision blinds him. He's knocked to his rear end. He's given mercy. And he knows he deserves wrath. And he says, I'm compelled. I can't help myself. The love of Christ compels me. It's my prayer as I've been preparing this week and even this morning uh, that this message will inspire all of us to deepen our involvement in the Great Commission, locally here on the Cape, and even to the ends of the earth. But I pray this happens because he has ignited in 
you a fire to know him. Now, please just don't misunderstand me. We must go. Your neighbors are waiting. The nations are waiting. But before you go, burn. I, I love this over here. I, it was brought to my attention Friday night. Starts with worship. Starts with knowing who he is and what he's done. And if you find yourself here this morning and you've got just a little flame that's flickering in your heart for the greatness of Jesus, remember, he does not extinguish a smoldering flax. Would you just ask him, God, fan into flame my heart. Let worship be the fuel for my desire to reach my neighbors, to reach the nations. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we believe that a new and great movement of the gospel on the Cape, a new and great movement of missions will not begin with a focus on the world, but with a new vision of you, Jesus, and then the world. So we ask for the sake of your glory Oh, we need your help. God, we're distracted so often. We get focused on trivial and inconsequential things. Forgive us. And I pray that you would reveal more of the glory of Jesus to us. And that you would, you would help us to love you as you ought to be loved. We're so often lukewarm in our affections for you. So, uh, Spirit of God, just move in our hearts. Make us, make us into worshipers who can't contain the message about our King. Here we are. Send us, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.